Hi, Creepers. This is Unexplained Oregon, a podcast with two best friends talking about all things creepy, the unexplained, and the missing in the Pacific Northwest. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unexplained Oregon. You can also email us at unexplainedoregon at gmail.com. We love our listeners' suggestions, and we love hearing from you. That reminds me, if you're a friend of the podcast and you want more people to find out about us, can you take a minute to go on Apple Podcast and give us a good rating? We appreciate that. Kim and I talk about real-life intense subjects on this podcast that could be disturbing to some listeners. We also use bad language. As always, be mindful and take care of yourselves. And here we go. Back in April, we met up with true crime cat lawyer Elise for our first collaboration with another podcaster. Now that was really fun because how we collaborated was we did the breakdown of the events leading up to um, a court case. So we did we covered the crime, we covered the events, and Elise covered the court case due to her like legal background and knowledge it was pretty cool yeah really really intriguing case uh you're gonna listen to the unsolved murder of diane hank and the fong murder trials so while we were there we just happened to be together that weekend it's our favorite way to record and we already had this appointment set up with elise and we were at the coast uh on lincoln city on a little rundown house right on right on the beach and it was interesting yes uh it was a great reunion weekend with our pals from high school shout out to those gals who were listening uh and while we were there recording in this little room we like hunkered down just in one of the bedrooms and and met up with elise over zoom and we picked up a an EVP and we didn't realize we had this on a recording because it's taken me so long to get to editing this, but it's so cool. An electronic voice phenomenon. So yeah, we are actually going to be playing our EVP for you in an upcoming episode. We have some very exciting episodes coming up uh, that we cannot wait to release We've actually interviewed someone on our 10-year ghost story, and so we're working really hard in getting that edited and put together because it's a lot, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely stay tuned listening so you can hear our EVP that we picked up when we recorded this episode. We can't wait to hear what y'all think about it. for introducing us to this one because I had never heard about this one so to um, have a crime that we have never heard about you know is always exciting but it's always we always try to be more mindful when it's children for those of you who have listened to our collaboration episodes before you know that our guests usually cover the background of the case and then I cover the legal aspects of the case So I will now hand things over to Kim and Christine to get us started on the case of Diane Hank and the Fongs. Yeah, like I said, I had never heard of this case, and um, it, you know, it was interesting to learn about. 
uh, we're going to talk about the murder of Diane Hank, which happened in 1954, and Diane was from Portland, Oregon. Just a little backstory on Diane. She, um, she was 15 years old when she was found, and she had, <clears throat> she had been babysitting for this couple, Sherry and Wei Him Fong, for about three years. So she had known these people for a while. So she would have met them around 1951. And the Fongs had two children. They had Catherine and Vince. And in reading about Diane and their relationship with the Fongs, Diane's sister was reported saying that Sherry and Diane were very close. So it sounds like uh, she made friends with these people and established this babysitting. She wanted to make some extra money and became kind of friends. And it sounded like Sherry kind of took Diane under her wing. Um, and just a little bit about Diane. Let me get my other notes here. She was a... <laughs> my spreadsheet. Yeah, our spreadsheet. She too. was a good athlete. Uh, she had... It sounded like she had recently taken up skiing as a hobby. She was a f six foot tall. She was very beautiful. There's a picture out there um, that you can see online. She's really pretty. I think she was blonde. Yeah, she yeah. was blonde. And uh, it sounded like, and she also worked part-time at a law firm delivering messages we found out she was busy so for 15 years old that's kind of interesting to us that you know she was babysitting and uh she had this other job and she you know was athletic it sounded like she was a well-rounded person you know 15 year old girl and we kind of in researching about this we talked about how interesting it is how during this time people would just you know send their be okay with sending their 15 year old girl out to babysit like it was very common for you to find a babysitting job that you know or even then i mean she probably she started when she was around 12. right i was actually reading a reddit article about the case and it was the author of that that said it's so interesting that we'll send like our young girls out even now you know getting a babysitting job you go on i think it's care.com and you can sign up and you know, but when we were growing up, I mean, that was your first job for a lot of us is babysitting. And, and there are certainly times where young girls are just sent out to do this. And do they even really know, like, the background of the family? And and yet in our culture, we're okay to, to do this as a form of income or, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. for it's sure. interesting that you bring, you bring that up, too, because kind of you mentioning that it's almost like because these people have children and we're asked, you know, they're asking for somebody to watch their children. It's like, there's this implicit trust right. in that person. Like this person wouldn't do anything harmful to my child as, you know, the babysitter because they have their own kids, you know, right. it's almost like this weird, like we trust them without really even knowing them just right. for the fact that they have kids. Yeah. Right. And they're sure. married. So there's like this, yeah, you, like you said, it's already like this trust is then what established as safe. I wonder if her, Diane's parents had ever even met them, you know. Well, and the Fongs were young. Like, I, that's what shocked me. They were 23 when, you know, this happened. And so they're young in itself. So the age difference 
between, they probably connected because they were, you know, young. And so she felt some connection with them. She, like I said, her sister had reported that uh, they were very close and that they had exchanged clothes often. Um, and Sherry had actually helped Diane through an unplanned pregnancy. So Diane was a mother herself and had an unplanned pregnancy. So that, you know, it sounded like they were a good support system for Diane from what we read, from what we could research. So we're going to talk about the night of January 6th. Uh, it was reported that Diane had had a present for Mr. Fong that she wanted to give to them, a Christmas present. She hadn't seen them over the holidays and she wa she had like a shirt, I think it was, that she wanted to deliver. I think it was a sweater. Over there, a Christmas sweater, you let's know. say that. <laughs> and so Diane had spoken to Sherry and um, they set up this time and went over there. Diane's mom allowed her to go over there, it sounded like, and knew that's where she was gonna be. When she went over there, there was another couple present, the Smallies, and it was reported that um, they were having drinks and the kids were in the next room. I read somewhere and I tried to find it again that Diane did have her child there with her that night, but I'm, I'm not sure. I tried to go back and find that. I'm not quite sure on that. So the Smallies were there for pre-dinner drinks. We don't know why, but the Smallies left, and that is always a question to me. I was like, were they just there for a pre-dinner drink, or did something happen and they left? There's, there's a lot of gray area with this case, and it's not so black and white, and so when you go to research it, you really want to know about the relationship between Diane and, you know, and the Fongs, but you, there's just not a lot out there you know, that you can learn. So there is a lot of gray area here. It was reported during the night that two people had spoken to her while she was at the Fongs that night. Her friend Anne Encontro had called her at the Fongs that night while she was there and had a conversation with her and reported saying that Diane had told her that they were having a party and that she was high. I just want to say it was reported that Diane had partaked in cannabis or at some point and that actually hindered the case because a lot of people looked at that and turned their eye on her and didn't want to get involved in it. So we don't know the level of partying that was happened that night. Like we don't know what, but it was reported that she had told her friend that they were high. And and then the other person that they talked to was her mom, right? Mm -hmm. So when her mom called in, what she told her mom, what did she tell I her mom? I think she said, we're having dinner and I just had my pen curls yes. done. So she had, she had told her mom, I'm here, uh, I'll be home soon, I have pen curls in my hair, uh, which was interesting to us and took us down this tunnel on pen curls and we researched how to pen curl your hair in the 50s and stuff. It's, you know... Kind of interesting. Well, more importantly, like, how long did it take? So right. it was enough of something that was occurring that it, it obviously was going to take, or it explained why she was there for longer. Because the story was, I'm here, I'm going to go drop this sweater off. And, and now it's, oh, I'm here, there's dinner, and... Sherry did my pin curls for me, or she's going to do it. So we started thinking, well, how long did these pin curls take? Because she obviously 
used it as a reason to stay longer. And so that kind of, like we said, took us down the pin curl, and history of the pin curl. Right, and it's a lengthy <laughs> process to pin curl your hair. You have to separate out your hair by, you know, one inch strands and curl it around your finger and pin it. And so it's, it's a pretty... it for a little while. It's yeah. a pretty lengthy process. Uh, so then later on, Diane called her mom again, and um, so she talked to her mom twice while she was there and said that she couldn't get a ride home. Mr. Fong wasn't there to give her a ride home, and so they had both decided, why don't you just stay there that night? So that second phone call she had with her mom, she hung up with her mom and she had decided, let's just have you stay the night there. Mm -hmm. And that was the last conversation that she had with her mom. Which makes me wonder if she had ever spent the night there before, if that was, you know, because even that takes trust, you know, to... I was just thinking the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if she's suggesting that and it's not like, oh, no, they would never let me stay the night or, you know, something right. like that. It's, it does make you wonder, like, has this happened before? Like, how many times has this happened before? Like, there's obviously, I mean, like you said, you couldn't find anything that they had ever actually met. Diane's parents, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's interesting that the kind of suggestion of staying the night with somebody you've never met. Yeah. You know, what, which we, I weird. mean, as parents, you know, it's like we would have known who the people were. Oh, we yeah. So we're not saying we that they didn't meet, you know, but, but it's um, some of what we researched implied that Diane did not herself even understand the full ex extent of, of the, the couple and like what was going on with the couple. And, and then we've also read that, that perhaps Diane knew more than she should have known too. So, right. yeah. And I could see too, like if she's, you know, drinking or getting high with these people, like she might not want her parents to yeah. meet them. True. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So Diane's body was found on February 27th, uh, top of a steep hill on the south side of Evergreen Highway in Clark County, Washington. She was wrapped in two blankets and a sheet tied with rope. She was wearing the same clothes she had on that night. Uh, and her uh, bra was pulled up over her chest. She still had the pin curls in, which, which we thought was interesting. Or like a, so the pin curls, I mean, that wasn't a fib that she told her, you know, her mom. She, they definitely, she, her pin curls were in. So she had been missing for like six weeks, I think. You know, we weren't sure like how that, like the details of, she obviously didn't show up at home the next day. So we couldn't find anything, I don't think, about like, well, when did they call the police or what, you know, what happened in terms of details of actually discovering she was missing? And so tests show that she had a half of a milligram of barbiturate. I mean, she can't read I'm my notes. Like, yeah, I'm like looking at her spreadsheet here. <laughs> tests show that um, Diane had a half of a milligram of barbiturate, right? Barbiturates in her liver with a mix of alcohol. And so um, the... The death, the diagnosed death was uh, an OD for her, is how they think she died. Uh, I couldn't find any accounts if she was sexually, 
being hurt in any way. Didn't it? Didn't really say anything like that. The only thing they said was that her bra was pulled up over her chest. So, um, the 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 cause of death death they think was an OD. But then there was reports uh, that they didn't know if she had enough of those barbiturates in her system to actually cause the death. So hopefully you can go over that with it, the trial part of this because there's a lot of this that I didn't even research because I knew you were going to go over the trial part. So I, I wanted to be kind of surprised today. Nice. Yeah. We tried to find information of exactly when Sherry called the police and stuff. And I think you might go into this. She had released like a newspaper article out there classified in the asking. classified ads asking uh, Diane, you know, come back home or whatever will help you. So, and that was about two weeks, I think, after Diane went missing. Um, Sherry did the classified ad, and did we talk at all about where we're kind of jumping around, but where her body was actually discovered? Yeah, she was discovered atop a steep hill on the south side of Evergreen Highway in Clark County. But you were researching how far away that is. From Portland because we thought that that was interesting too uh, the distance like where she was found she wasn't found in Oregon she was found right. in Washington so um, and maybe you'll have more information of this the two maybe Washington police got involved Oregon got involved I'm not sure on that it's interesting that her body was found across like you know not the river. yeah yeah so did did they know that that would, you know, be better to drop it across the state line or, you know. Typically people leave, you know, bodies in places that they're familiar with. Also, they're not going to go somewhere brand new to to leave a body. So it, we were just talking like that's interesting that she was found in Washington, 25 miles, I think, from like in Chinatown, like the old Chinatown area. So just kind of noticing like, huh, I wonder how that impacted like the investigation or typically when things are across, you know, two different states involved, it can kind of impact things as well. The other thing I want to just talk and touch on that I don't know that we touched on was sort of, and I'm sure you will do more, Elise, on this, is this, um, the couple themselves that, that she was babysitting for were um, an interracial couple in the 50s in Oregon so there was already sort of the suspicion on them or you know suspicion on them as a couple to begin with and the laws at that time I was reading um, I think it was in like you know they were still making it legal to be able to marry interracially in Oregon in like the 50s I think so already sort of the the couple themselves that she was involved with or babysitting for I think is a part of this case and the fact that she was a young girl who had sort of this reputation as well as like being an unwed mother and she had partaked in cannabis partying. yeah so um, those were kind of things that the devil's she, lettuce exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's where we're at. I'm excited to hear about the trial part of this, Elise, because like I said, we didn't, I, there was a lot I could have read more about, but I stopped myself. As far as I could tell, again, the information is super limited, um, but as far as I can tell, her being found in Vancouver 
really had no effect on kind of the investigation piece. I think um, they kind of called PPB, Portland Police Bureau, in right away, um, and it doesn't seem like there was any kind of, you know, jurisdictional issues or anything like that. I think, and unfortunately we still see this today, the kind of missing white girl syndrome. Mm -hmm. I think it was a well enough known case in that time that they were sort of on alert okay. to let Makes sense. the Portland police know. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, because I know that when I read through my research, a lot of what I read about was that this was like a huge deal at that time in Oregon. You know, it was a really big, things like this don't happen in, you know, Portland and all these right. kinds of things. Yeah, because it seems like it was the disappearance of Diane Hanks. That seems like there's that part of it, and then there's the, the you know, finding her. It's like, you're right, this, you know, I'm sure it was quite jarring at that at this time mm -hmm. in Oregon. I can only imagine. Yeah, and I also didn't come across any information about what their actual investigation into her disappearance looked like. Um, you know, were there, I imagine there were searches and interviews mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, I know really the only thing I came across was the classified ad that you had talked about, mm -hmm. um, yeah. that Sherry put, but other than that, there wasn't really any detail into where searches happened, how many searches happened, you know, anything of that nature. The one thing that I did read was that people stopped searching when they found out that she was an unwed mother and had been using, you know, had used any kind of substance, you know, cannabis, they stopped like caring as much, which again is sort of the, the same thing that happens nowadays, you know, that depending on what a person's behaviors are or lifestyle or whatever there's sort of a an importance placed on whether we find them or not which is really sad yeah. we talk about that a lot yeah. you know everybody is somebody yeah so right and it's like she transitioned from being the perfect victim yes to the not so perfect victim and yeah. so when they make that sort of transition you know society like you said has this hierarchy of importance and we don't tend to care about, you know, people that are not you and I, we, but, you know, the proverbial we yes. don't care about people who are involved with drugs or unwed mothers or homeless you know, sex people. workers, yes. homeless people. You know, the, the people who actually probably need us to care the most mm -hmm. are the people who don't get that, you know, same treatment. It's so, so true. So we kind of ended things with you guys yeah. on finding... Diane's body um so initially the district attorney didn't want to prosecute the Fongs um like you kind of mentioned there was some discrepancies in the toxicology report and kind of the real cause of death mm -hmm. you know was a very it, it was vague essentially you know overdose can kind of mean a lot of things and it wasn't really clear if there was an actual overdose it also kind of wasn't clear, is this a murder? So the district attorney was kind of hesitant to do anything at first. But, of course, he was up for re-election, and the community wanted charges to be brought. And so the Fongs were indicted for murder, and their trial began in 1955. So this first original trial, they were actually tried together, um, which... 
think makes sense to some extent, but as we kind of go through the trial, it makes a little less sense. Mm. Um, so basically the prosecution said the Fongs murdered Diane because she, quote, knew too much about their drug dealing ventures. Um, so like you guys mentioned, Diane was found wrapped in blankets and mm-hmm. a sheet tied with rope. Mm-hmm. And with her body, there was also a small pill bottle found. Mm-hmm. And this pill bottle had, it was about two-thirds full, and it had vitamin B12, which they're going to refer to as rubamin, and then another vitamin called Theragin M. So they had an expert testify at the trial that the word rubamin was written on the label of the pill pill bottle in green ink on an American elite type typewriter and then there were also instructions you know when you get a pill bottle from the pharmacy it tells you you know what it is how much it is how you're supposed to take it so on the instruction line were the words Diane take one daily and these words were written in black ink on a machine uh, known as a Pika typewriter now, I'm sure you're wondering, what does this mean? <laughs> Why do I care? <laughs> so exciting. Um, it, yes. So the biggest difference between an American Elite typewriter and a Pika typewriter is the size of the font. So according to my vast Google knowledge, <laughs> um, the Pika font is only 10 point, while the American Elite is 12 point. So not a huge difference. But, but enough. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. We know so, our fonts. <laughs> right. I think, you know, we can all see the difference between yeah. 10 and 12. Yeah. You know, it's it's not as drastic as like a 10 and 36. Yeah. Sure. But it is still kind of noticeable. So here's why this really matters. The Fongs didn't have either an American Elite or a Pika machine. They had a German Elite machine, which is different than both the American Elite and the Pika typewriters. So the expert testified that the word Rubamin was written by the pharmacy's typewriter. Um, You know, probably when she was given the prescription, that's what was printed on there. And then the words, Diane, take one daily, couldn't have been written on either the pharmacy's machine or the Fong's machine. So weird. So weird. And... That was kind of all that was really said about that. Um, you know, they basically said there was no way to know who wrote the instructions for Diane on the pill bottle. Hmm. But it's it's interesting to me because it's not handwritten on the bottle. Mm-hmm. So we know somebody didn't just, you know, scribble Diane take one daily. But knowing that obviously the pharmacy didn't write it because they didn't have that kind of machine. And then the Fongs didn't have the right kind of machine. Like, where did this instruction come from? And why was that with her? Like, it seemed, would she just carry those with her all the time, I wonder? Like, who, I mean, a lot of us are into our vitamins, but that's, like, yeah, really interesting, you know? <laughs> that's a strange thing for her to have on her, like, that also, you know? Yeah, and it being, like, two-thirds full is also interesting to me because it kind of makes me think either she recently refilled it or 
somebody refilled it for her mm-hmm. to leave with her or something like it clearly was not something that she had just kind of you know oh this is the end of it I'm you know finishing it off yeah. that kind of thing um she, there was you know evidence that at least some of it was missing so mm-hmm. she probably took some of it um but yeah just a really weird situation where we don't really know how these instructions got put on there but arguably the instructions are one of the more important aspects of a prescription bottle you know how to take them um even though you kind of go over with the pharmacist like how you're supposed to take your pills it's also important because we all have memory lapses you know we forget Mm -hmm. um it's important to have that on the bottle so it's interesting to me that we don't really know who wrote this and why very but we know it wasn't the fongs right so um that's so interesting why and i'm trying to picture like the pharmacist sitting there typing the prescription out you know like i don't even think about how they used to have to do that too like on their typewriter so yeah i know i was thinking about that too when i was looking up the difference between machines and i was like oh my gosh they used to have to like type this like Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I question the hair analysis. <laughs> um, so they did have a 
Miss Molly testify, who you guys mentioned. Yes. She, you know, talked about how she came with her husband for drinks. And Diane was there. And she testified that, of course, they didn't stay for dinner. But she didn't, I didn't find anything, again, as to why they didn't stay for dinner. Yeah. Um, so they don't stay for dinner. But at the time they leave, Diane allegedly was a few martinis in. And according to Miss Smalley, she was, quote-unquote, acting silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Well, and I, I want to say that um, I think it makes sense that they just came over for drinks because I think this was of the era where, and even when I was growing up in like the 70s and 80s, we were growing up, um, people would just stop by people's homes like unannounced all the time and like, you know, come in for a cup of coffee or, and this was right after the holidays, maybe there was some, you know, gathering and they just stopped by for a cocktail. I, I think that is of the era where I could see that they didn't stay for dinner mm. and that that was like a normal thing. So I just want to throw that in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing that your statement makes me think of is how terrible that is to have people come to your house. I hate it. I hate it too. I'm so glad it doesn't happen anymore because if you knock on my door, I am not going to answer that. No. No, No, I'm not home. I'm like hiding. Yeah. (laughs) But I think too, like to your point, it's almost maybe less of an imposition to kind of just stop by, stop by for drinks. It's more imposing to kind of stay for dinner mm-hmm, and right. all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it does kind of make sense. They would just pop in for, you know, a few drinks and then head home. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I think acting silly was just kind of in reference to Diane was probably drunk. I mean, she's 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if I have a few martinis now, I'll... <laughs> I'm act definitely silly. acting silly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think it just... It goes to show kind of that she was not in a right state of mind mm-hmm. at that point. You know, she's probably not making, you know, choices for herself at that point. Yeah. So true. Intoxicated. Yeah. Um... So there's also the fact that blood was found on the floor mat in the trunk of the Fong's car. But the lab couldn't determine whether it was actually human blood or not. And I don't know if that's just because they didn't have the technology to do that at the time or why that was. Um, But they also pointed out the fact that Sherry had the car washed on January 11th, which, if I'm tracking correctly, was about five days Mm -hmm. after she disappeared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so part of that um, cleaning included the trunk. And so, of course, you know, the prosecution's telling the jury this to kind of infer that Sherry destroyed evidence in getting the car washed. And this is all circumstantial evidence. You know, there's obviously no direct... I mean, they can't even confirm whether the human or whether the blood is human. So, mm-hmm. of course, they can't confirm whether it's Diane's blood. But, you know, kind of taking everything as a whole, they're trying to, you know, make this circumstantial case that the Fongs are guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. 
they're the last people with her, you know, she's, she was partying with them, you know, yeah, the black hair. They're, they're, they're a suspicious couple. Yeah, they're, mean, they're already he's Asian. Asian. Yeah, they're so very suspicious. They have a lot of things against yes. him here. <laughs> yes, so let's move on to the toxicology report, because I think this is probably the most contentious kind mm -hmm. of area is her actual cause of death and, you know, the autopsy and everything like that. So the coroner testified for the prosecution and he told the jury that barbital, which is a sedative, was found in Diane's system, but only a very small amount by the time that he examined her. Um, like you guys had mentioned, her body wasn't found for approximately six weeks mm -hmm. after she went missing. So that's a long time for, you know, everything to kind of leave the system. And it's hard to know how much was actually in her system at the time she died. That's so true. Because it's been so long. Mm -hmm. um, so even though there was only a very small amount, he felt that when the Barbital originally entered her system, it kind of even evenly distributed throughout her organ systems over time and so he felt like when she first ingested it there was probably a high concentration and then over time you know hours days however long it is that would be long enough for the drug to be kind of destroyed or excreted mm -hmm. by her body to where there's not much evidence of it but there's still enough evidence that he you know felt comfortable saying that that was ingested and likely the cause of her poisoning is how he put it um he also said that the bitter taste of the barbital could have been disguised by putting it in some kind of alcoholic drink such as the martinis that Diane was consuming on the night she was um, last seen. Okay. That's scary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's, I think I mentioned that the barbital is a sedative, so you're already consuming alcohol, which is a depressant, and then you're adding a sedative on top of that, that's a lot of, you know, depression for your body mm -hmm. to go through. And so I think that's kind of where he was coming from in terms of the cause of death is by ingesting this barbital on top of the alcohol that she has, her system was so depressed that it basically just kind of shut down. And that was kind of the poisoning to her body, just the over depressing mm -hmm. of all of her organ systems, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So the Fongs had their own pathologist testify, which again, I think is probably fairly reasonable given that the cause of death is very key in this case. Um, you know, if it's a suicide as the defense is painting it, then they're not guilty of murder because mm -hmm. it's a suicide. So it's important to know kind of how she could have died. So the defense pathologist testified that 
based on the evidence he read in the autopsy and the toxicology report, there was no proof in his mind that Diane actually died of the barbitol poisoning. And his opinion was kind of based on the amount that was found in Diane's body at the time of the autopsy. And so I think what he was arguing is that if she had actually died of barbitol poisoning, much more would have been found in her system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have two like completely opposite opinions, basically. Right. Which yeah. again makes sense because you can kind of pay anybody to say what you want them to say. Sure. Um, that's the problem with expert witnesses to some extent, you mm-hmm. know, I think for the most part, those who are um, sort of with the, the county or the state, I think they tend to be a little bit more reliable because they're, that's their job, right. you know, whereas kind of experts that you can pay for are, I mean, it's their job, but they get paid for it in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, like professional experts I guess is what I'm talking about yeah where that's kind of how you make your living is just testifying in different cases um I don't know anything about barbitol poisoning um and I also I think that the coroner laid out a better argument just in terms of how the body process works mm-hmm. to kind of process things in and out of the system. Um, so I don't find the defense's expert as compelling. Okay. Well, I wonder even about the alcohol. So is that the same case then with the alcohol that's found in her system? There was still alcohol found in her system after six weeks. I wonder how that works too. Like, is our body able to also like, I mean, could they have used the same thing, you know, in terms of comparing the alcohol to the actual um, other substances found? Um, Or did they? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't really read anything about that. Mm -hmm. Um, They really focused a lot more on this, like, barbital sedative. Um, But I do think, you know, if you just kind of look at how we test blood alcohol content in people, you know, you can test somebody who blows, you know, a 0.18 right now, but in a couple hours, it's not going to be that. Right. So I think there definitely is this kind of, Mm -hmm. um, dissipation, dissipation. And part of the problem too, is not necessarily knowing when, she really died Mm -hmm. because she was last seen on, you know, January, was it 5th? Yeah. The 6th, I think, right? She was, she was, there are some theories though. There's a couple people that came out and said that they saw her. So that's conflicting there. Like people saw her in town or. So that was all hearsay. But yeah, yeah, January 6th was the night she was with the Fongs. And then she was found February 27th. So I think even that, you know, even if those witnesses, witness reports are inaccurate, um, it, there's still the possibility that she was alive mm-hmm. for yeah. some period of time. Um, and so not knowing her actual 
day of death, I, I think creates a lot more confusion too about how much of her body like did this process and you know um just there's still a lot of unknown information because we don't necessarily I mean I think it's assumed from a lot of what I read that she did die the last night she was seen Mm -hmm. but there's still that kind of lingering question of whether she actually did or not one thing that the prosecution also Uh, pointed out at trial was that Sherry was a pre-med student at the time of Diane's death and she was working for a doctor's office that was in the same building as the pharmacy that Diane went to Mm. and according to the prosecution Sherry could get vitamins from the pharmacy without a prescription and I think there was just it was a different time in the 1950s. I think there's certain things you had to have a prescription for, even like some vitamins. I'm not really sure why, but... Yeah, interesting. So, like I said earlier, the prosecution believed that the Fongs murdered Diane in order to silence her because they thought she was going to go to the police and she was going to tell them everything she knew about their ir- illegal drug dealing activities. Mm-hmm to the extent she knew anything about those, because I think that's also still pretty disputed as to whether or not she actually knew anything about that. Obviously, she knew they had cannabis, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of argument about whether or not she knew anything more than that was going on. So basically, she... It's interesting to me that they kind of pointed at Sherry as the one right who would do this but there is the fact that she offered an undercover officer $125,000 to help her find someone to get rid of Diane and this is $125,000 in 1955 or 54 so that's a lot of money Mm -hmm. So they have evidence, or they had an undercover informant? They had an undercover officer that testified at trial that she was basically going around to different people, offering them money, and he was one of the people she offered $125,000 to to help her find someone that would get rid of Diane. I don't know. That just doesn't make sense to me, because everything you hear, they were close, you know... She had helped her through her pregnancy. It just... I, that, and she just happened to bump into this under undercover informant. Like, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and that, so I think that also you would think that this is damning uh, testimony against Sherry, but Sherry also claimed kind of within this um, same event that the police actually drugged her and so there's no real conclusive evidence about any of it, the mm-hmm. money or the drugging. So for me, it's definitely like a red herring. I mean, I would hope that people don't lie under oath, but I also... I mean, we know they do though, right? Like it, They do. Yeah. And I think if you're trying to kind of fight back against, you know, the fact that she's telling people the police drugged her, you know, why not say... 
well, actually, she offered me $125,000 to kill somebody. Right. Yeah, and at that point, are people going to believe her? You know, she's the one... She's married to an Asian man. They're not going to believe her. (laughs) She's suspicious. (laughs) So, we've talked a lot about Sherry, but what about Mr. Fong? Right. So, the prosecution did bring up his criminal record. He, in October of prostitution or so so I don't even know how accurate the Smalleys were supposedly involved in something as well but who knows what what the truth is with that right but I think you know when you sort of put this air out there Mm -hmm. even if you're using the word alleged in front of it you're still saying you know this person deals in drugs basically yeah you're planting the seed for sure yeah. Right. Um, so, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you're looking at it, the jury found the Fongs guilty of first-degree murder, and they voted 10-2 to 2 for the death penalty. 
but the judge set aside the jury's verdict, stating that the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial and didn't offer any reputable showing of malice or premeditation, which of course is one of the elements that the prosecution has to prove for the charge of first-degree murder. Just so everyone knows, a judge is allowed to set aside the jury's verdict when he or she believes the jury was incorrect as a matter of law based on the facts of the case. And so in this case, the judge, like I mentioned, said the case was entirely circumstantial and the prosecution didn't prove malice or premeditation, which of course is an element of first degree murder. And so if the prosecution hasn't proven that, then you can't convict the Fongs because they have to prove every element of first-degree murder. Yeah. So setting aside the verdict just means that the judge is overturning the jury's decision in order to correctly comport with the law, which, like I mentioned, the law is murder is, you know, A, B, C, D. If you're missing one of those, you don't have murder. Mm -hmm. But rather than letting the Fongs go, the prosecution tried the Fongs again. Of course. So this is trial number two, but it is separate trials for Mr. Fong and Miss Mrs. Fong. So Mr. Fong's trial lasted about two and a half weeks, and he allegedly tried to have two prosecution witnesses killed, but I didn't find any conclusive evidence of that. Okay. So I'm not... It also seemed like a red herring. Mm -hmm. Like, they just kind of threw it out there. And I also say it's a red herring because, ultimately, the judge found in favor of Wayne Fong. He issued a directed verdict for Mr. Fong. And so, in this case, a directed verdict is simply simply a decision that the judge made saying that the prosecution didn't satisfy its burden of proof in proving that Mr. Fong was guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Diane Hank beyond a reasonable doubt. So again, the judge is looking at this case and saying, your evidence of murder is really weak, Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to find that Mr. Fong was guilty of murder because you haven't proven your case beyond a reasonable doubt. There's reasonable doubt in this case Mm -hmm. that he committed this murder and I didn't really read this in there but I don't think it was reasonable doubt that existed because Sherry committed the murder I think it was just this case is so weak that it's not even reasonable to know that a murder occurred in this case right okay so then we get into happens to Mr. Fong. So he's a free man, but not for long. He was arrested in 1958 for dealing heroin. They Hmm. finally got him. (laughs) Um, According to federal agents, they uncovered the largest narcotics operation on the West Coast at the time. This is according to federal agents. I have no idea if it's true or not. Yeah. But... Mr. Fong pled guilty, and he was sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison. 
He was paroled in 1970 and allegedly returned to Portland to become the largest drug dealer in Chinatown. Hmm. He was arrested once again and convicted of heroin and cocaine possession in 1973. And then he died in prison in 1976 after allegedly falling in the shower. Hmm. Wow. That's so... didn't really... That is not the way I thought he'd go out. (laughs) In the shower. So he was convicted again for possession the second time or the third conviction he had that again sounds like he could have just had like a small amount on him him. yeah he he must have pretty bad luck with i mean i yeah and as far as i could tell um i'll kind of go into what happened to sherry after but as far as i can tell um she was never convicted in the drug dealing kind of enterprise that he was convicted of um which I think is interesting because everything I read up until that point kind of hinted that she at least knew about it Mm -hmm. if not was actually involved in it as well so I mean maybe they just didn't have very good evidence of that by the time they prosecuted him or you know they gave her a deal I don't really know because the circumstances weren't really clear to me but I just thought it was interesting that up until that point they'd always said that they were kind of in it together running this drug enterprise but when it came to actually prosecuting they only prosecuted Mr. Fong Hmm. and for the biggest enterprise is that what okay it's just all of it seems a little off to me so Miss Sherry Fong she like we talked about um there was a second trial because, you know, the jury or the judge set aside the verdict in the first trial. So the second trial resulted in a mistrial. And for those of you who either aren't familiar with the legal system or more specifically aren't familiar with the the legal system in the U.S., a mistrial is the result of a procedural error that renders the trial invalid. So if a mistrial occurs, the prosecution can still pursue their case against the defendant without concerns for double jeopardy. Mm. And we covered double jeopardy in one of our tidbits episodes, but to kind of briefly summarize, double jeopardy only applies to final judgments. So a mistrial essentially makes it so the trial never happened. Okay. So the only, the one caveat with that is that if a mistrial was the the result of prosecutorial misconduct, then the protections of double jeopardy do apply. But as far as I could tell from my research, I believe her second trial was the result of a hung jury, Hmm. not prosecutorial misconduct. So she could be tried for a third time, and she was convicted of second-degree murder at that time. And I think it's important to note that it was second-degree murder, which doesn't require... Uh, intent or excuse me premeditation Mm -hmm. she's tried for the third time she's convicted and as far as I could tell they presented the same evidence every time I I didn't really read that anything ever changed so of course the evidence still wasn't that strong because you know we went over the evidence in the first trial 
it was essentially the same throughout. So Sherry appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court, and in 1957, the Oregon Supreme Court overturned Sherry's conviction. Hmm. A year later, after a fourth trial, Sherry was finally acquitted of Diane Hanks' murder. So this was 1958. Wow. So four years, four trials. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot of money too going that out. That the for state this, that the state is spent. Yeah. Okay. Crazy. Yeah. And so now, you know, because she's been acquitted, they can't, you know, go after her again. And I believe they opted not to go after uh, Mr. Fong after, you know, his directed verdict. Yeah. So, essentially, you know, that's kind of where things end. There's no conviction. There's no, you know, kind of resolution of the case. I think in a lot of people's minds still, it was the Fongs. Mm -hmm. Which is so crazy to me, because after hearing this, I don't think it was the Fongs. I'm sorry. I just... But I don't know. I, yeah. You know, it's... So I have a couple, um, just like, wasn't really sure where to put them, but they were kind of just thoughts of the different um, judges and justices that kind of reviewed the case. And I think they're kind of a good segue into our theories. Okay. So one of the justices on the Oregon Supreme Court kind of noted that a lot of the time in the first trial was spent, wasted, in kind of these heated discussions between the judge and the prosecuting attorney and then these kind of lengthy explanations by the judge of his rulings. So there was just a lot of like back and forth about kind of evidentiary things Mm -hmm. and that was just a huge waste of time for everybody. So then um, I mentioned, you know, Sherry claimed that the police drugged her in an undercover sting operation. There was never any conclusive evidence of that. Um, And I think, as far as I could tell, that only came up really in the first trial. So I'm not even sure if they brought it up in later trials. And then, of course, the biggest um, point of contention, I think, was the toxicology report. And I think if you looked at it today with kind of our lens in 2022, mm-hmm. I think most coroners, toxicologists would say that these results are inconclusive mm-hmm. at best. Um, her cause of death was listed as an overdose with a mix of barbital and alcohol poisoning, but there wasn't any reference to kind of alternate causes of death or, and I, I don't even think that... I read anywhere where the manner of death was specified. So, you know, homicide, suicide, accident, something like that. Um, I think it almost seems like inconclusive would be, I hate to say the best categorization, but I think it, it fits in this case because there just isn't enough information. Mm -hmm. So, I think the three main theories, and you can kind of discuss these in a minute, um, but I think they can just kind of be summed up with this 
basic question, which is, was Diane's Hank's death was Diane Hank's death an accident, suicide, or murder? Oh, it's a, it's disturbing to think about. I'm I, I want to well, know. I mean, accident seems like like an op an option to some extent, but mm-hmm. suicide. I want to chime in about something that I read, which was that she was also, I believe, in a relationship with the boyfriend of her child, the father of her child. And she had expressed that there were, you know, a lot of ups and downs and she was upset about maybe the way he was treating her. He was standing her up. And I think in the defense, maybe Sherry's defense or... I'm I'm not sure. Maybe you know. Um, they mentioned that she was had mentioned killing herself. So I'm thinking this is the same thing that you read. That um, you know because of this relationship and kind of the ups and downs and it being unclear if he was going to be with her or stay with her. That you know and being 15 years old and a mom and kind of at that place where. Sometimes we can get a little dramatic, too. I'm sure she wasn't like, or maybe she was. Maybe there was some history of that. Um, Add a little bit of alcohol into that or a lot of alcohol, um, some other depressants or, you know, and what comes out of somebody's mouth, again, is going to be quite different than what they would actually say or do normally. So I don't know. Was there any more that you read about that? There wasn't, I think you did a good job kind of summarizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the only other things I read about was that, you know, her family obviously didn't think it was a suicide. And I, I kind of, I, this is my own personal opinion. Um, I sort of lean towards either accident Mm -hmm. or accidental suicide. And I know that that's kind of a weird term Mm -hmm. but I think that there's definitely evidence of that in other cases that Mm -hmm. you know that person's kind of in that headspace to where you know they're trying to cope and trying to deal with those kind of suicidal thoughts and they're not necessarily intending to commit suicide Mm -hmm. but they're also kind of doing things that could lead to that Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say accidental suicide, but my thinking behind accident is her body being wrapped up Mm -hmm. and kind of disposed of seems like an accident. Like it kind of seems like somebody took a little bit of care for her. You know, they wrapped her up in a blanket and kind of tied it up so that maybe it would be protected from the elements or animals or something. Um, and maybe somebody would find her. But what's clear to me is that she did not take herself to where she was found. Sure. Yeah. And then we were also thinking that the fact that her bra was pulled up over her chest, maybe someone was making, trying to make it look like, you know, something else had happened. Uh, Another red herring. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I I might be misremembering this, but I think I read in one source that they were talking about, you know, she was found in all the clothes that she was wearing the night she was last seen. But I think I read somewhere where they talked about it didn't seem like 
seemed like she had had these clothes placed on her mm. by someone else. Interesting. Um, so that was also, yeah, interesting to me. Like, mm-hmm. she must have been naked or partially naked at some point then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it was definitely for sure the bra that they said wasn't. Yeah. Didn't look like she had done it mm-hmm. herself. Yeah. Um, interesting that going back to the boyfriend too, I think his name was Kenneth Martin. And I, I read something where he had actually had threatened Diane as well. So there was a report out there, um, you know, that he said he would actually kill her if she looked at another boy or something. So there was some jealousy and contention going on between Kenneth and Diane too, but was, the prosecu- yeah. prosecution never, that we know of, ever look at anyone else. Was that brought up in the trial or anything? Horrible. Oh, so I didn't even find, I mean, I found what you talked about, the kind of jealous comments that he made and that they weren't, um, you know, necessarily on the best of terms. But I never found anything about him being interviewed, if he took a polygraph, mm-hmm. if I, I don't even think he testified at trial, which I mean, you know, I guess if he doesn't have any information about her last whereabouts or whatever, maybe that's normal. But I would think you would want somebody like him to kind of testify, you know, who Diane was, you know, she's the mother of his child, like all that. But I couldn't find anything that he testified at trial. Um and like I said, I never found anything that he was ever looked at or investigated. If he had an alibi, anything like that. Um, and I also thought it was kind of strange, too. I never found out what happened to her child, either. I was just going to ask you that. Thank you for saying that, because that is one of the most disturbing parts of this. Yeah. Is she had a one-year-old child when she died, and... Like I said, I thought I had read that her child was there that night with them. I'm not quite sure on that, but that is so sad because I didn't find any information of what happened to her child either. Mm-hmm. And that's where my mind went is what what happened and why I also wanted to be very mindful of this case because, you know, there are still living people out there that were affected by this. So, oof. And I think that was, like you said, also disturbing to me because I only came across the fact that she even had a child in, like, one or two articles. Mm -hmm. So even that, like, it was definitely way more focused on she was into drugs and she was drinking and not that she was a 15-year-old girl who was also a mother Working two jobs, oh. essentially, babysitting, and, and she had her attorney job. I mean, ugh. Right, like, very much, I mean, every victim is worth, you know, respect and concern. But in this case, you know, you have a 15-year-old girl mm-hmm. who is a mother, but she's, she's still a child herself, you know? And so for people to kind of just dismiss what happened to her because she, you know, may have used cannabis and may have had some drinks, mm-hmm. you know, who hasn't? Right. Mm-hmm. For sure. That doesn't make her any less deserving 
of, you know, figuring out what happened to her. Right. Because as far as I can tell from all of my research and everything that they said, her cause of death, like, still to this day isn't conclusive. Like, Mm -hmm. they still haven't really determined how she died. Wow. That's too bad. It's still kind of, you know, this amorphosis kind of overdose but what does that really mean like can we even really classify this as an overdose based on the toxicology reports that we have yeah I thought it was interesting too because we don't know exactly when Diane died but um, it was reported that one of her classmates said that Um, Here she had spotted Diane downtown on a corner, and this was a day after she had gone missing, so around the 7th. And then there was another class uh, mate of hers or friend that reported that she bumped into Diane at Meyer and Frank, but this was two weeks after she had gone missing. So I don't know if that came out in the trial, or I mean, that is all very much hearsay to me as well. You can take that with a grain of salt, but... I know the eyewitness accounts always kind of, <laughs> you know, it's unclear if those are like, in my opinion, reliable. Right. But. Yeah, I mean, I'm of the mindset that no eyewitness is reliable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because of my own um, flaws in memory and. Right. For sure. Eyesight. Um, so I think the only thing I've found about her friends testifying at trial was just that she had used marijuana at the Vong's house and she knew they grew marijuana there um that or they sold it or something they had marijuana in the home Mm -hmm. um so that was really all they testified to but what I found was interesting is that so they had marijuana in the home whatever but they never found evidence that there were barbiturates in the mm-hmm. Fong home. Interesting. Yeah. So, even that, I'm like, what? where did these come from then? If mm-hmm. they don't have these in right. their home, where is she getting these? There's so many just... unknowns with this case. Well, and didn't you say yeah. something also about, um, did you say what if she went to meet someone that night and that person gave her the vitamins... Um, so maybe there was somebody, maybe there was somebody else involved in this totally, someone we don't even know, Did right? she leave that night? There was, and you probably read this too, Sherry had put out an article in, uh, the newspaper or the whatever, classified. the classified ads after she went, like, reaching out to Diane, you know, come back, we'll help you through this. So did she, you know, maybe Diane did leave and that night to go meet someone and they knew, you know, that seems like a theory to me that's plausible. Yeah, and it's, it's that, like, classic case of tunnel vision by the police Mm -hmm. because they wrote off her doing the classified ads as, oh, this is just a gimmick to show that she's concerned and she cares, you know, she's trying to find this girl but she really knows like what happened to her rather than looking at it from the lens of no like they everything was fine when diane left and you know 
they assumed she was going home and they right. don't know where she is and they're trying to like you said they're they become friends sherry and her so she's trying to you know use that friendship that connection to mm-hmm. say like Diane, it's okay, like, you're not in trouble, like, but if you are, like, in physical danger or physical trouble, like, please reach out to us, like, we'll help you, that kind of thing, and instead of looking at it and saying, well, like you said, maybe she met somebody else that night, maybe she went to somebody else's house or, you know, came across some random person, if you're only, like, looking at the fongs, you're never gonna see any other possibilities of what could have happened to her and I feel like there's so like maybe that's why there's so many gaps Mm -hmm. in the case is because when you have that tunnel vision you never explore other possibilities so you miss like clues and evidence and witnesses that you should be interviewing people you should be talking to like there was so much just not done for her I feel like Mm mm-hmm do we know specifically what the Fong said, like, she left after dinner, or do we did we find any information? Because that's weird, too. Like, that's what I said earlier. I want to know specifically what they said happened when she left. Like, because, obviously, they were the last people to see her, so... That's the part I wish we knew, like, what, you know, what happened during those hours, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's something that maybe if you requested the trial transcripts, Mm. they might have more information, but I looked at um, kind of the appeals that Sherry had filed, and that's where I got most of my information from, and there was nothing mentioned in there about, like, what they kind of said about Sherry, like, Sherry and Mr. Fong's, like, last conversations or whatever with her, like, like you said, it's very strange that that information isn't known. Yeah. We Even were wondering. So that's the most important information. Yeah, we were wondering. We like, well, she left it yeah. this time. Yeah. And, you know, she was headed here or whatever. Like, there's just nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like she was at their house and then she disappeared. Right. Yeah. But I feel like there's, like, this section in time that we... I mean, was she at the house? Like, how long was she at the house? Like, when did she leave the house? Did she tell you guys where she was going after she left the house? Mm-hmm. Like, there's still so many questions. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad you introduced this case to us. It, it's, it's always interesting to find one that, um, you know, to, that had so much focus in Oregon and that we haven't heard about, you know, and we like to go back and find these cases when it involves an interracial couple and the discrimination there. I mean, that, or even the way that she was treated once people, you know, so victim blaming, or, I mean, just pointing out why maybe they never solved it. Right. Like they were, like you said, the tunnel vision because of judgments, you know, made so frustrating. Mm -hmm frustrating that we still see those things today yeah I think that's the part that's just like extra yeah frustrating is that it was 1954 1955 when this happened but people still get treated like this mm-hmm. in 2022 mm-hmm. like the same exact story could happen now yeah luckily we have a better view on cannabis though <laughs> 
That's <laughs> all I'm saying. Yeah, I, almost, I almost threw that in there. That we've we've come a long way. Uh, I think the the most in, one of the most interesting things about this is the the prescription or the bottle, like the typing on that. To me, that's like, you know, and why was it with her? You know, why did, you know, was it tucked in her somewhere and nobody, like the person who put her or the people, it's like they didn't, I mean, it's so interesting to me. Um, it's such a, just a, an interesting detail. It doesn't mean necessarily a whole lot, but it kind of is interesting and it does mean something. It's like, the different typewriters. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I I was super like interested in the sense of I didn't know that there was like a way to tell such and such typewriter yeah. did this and such and such typewriter did that. You know, that's obviously back in the day, like that's what they could rely on. You know, nowadays we can probably tell you like IP addresses and different things so like true. that. But back in that time, you know, they were only able to kind of use the technology at hand and so having somebody that's like meticulously going through and saying like these are not coming from the same source is definitely interesting Mm -hmm. um but again tunnel vision I mean did Kenneth have a typewriter did Diane's parents have a typewriter did you know you never looked at anybody else's typewriter except the pharmacy and the fongs. So wrong. Weird. <laughs> and everyone had a typewriter back then. Yeah. <laughs> Be like our computers now, but yeah, it's uh, it's just a little side note here. It makes me think of this movie. Glenn Close was in it. She's a lawyer. And she gets her the guy off for murder. I know you saw this. Mm. And she and of course they you know hook okay. up and um and in in the movie there is like a letter you know that the murderer writes and she she gets him off um and she she goes back to his house after the trial and you know they're hooking up and she's like yeah just feeling so wonderful and she goes into his closet and she finds the typewriter and it's the typewriter of the murderer. <laughs> I remember she pulls it out. It's like up behind Is it heavy? Something. Yeah, I mean, they're typewriters. It's like, oh my God. she's like, oh my God, it's the German typewriter or whatever. I don't know. But she figures out that she actually just got him off for murder. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's super okay. First of all, my like biggest thought when you were talking about that is she's like pulling this like giant heavy typewriter <laughs> out of the closet. It's Glenn Close though. She's amazing. Yeah. So heavy. They are. It was definitely heavy, and like she knew when she saw it. I don't know how she knew, but she's like, "This is the typewriter." There must have been like a piece of paper in it, dear someone, and she just could tell by the font. I don't know. <laughs> Love it. Anyway. Well, I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts. I mean, I just, I... I still am so, and don't know what happened to her. Yeah, I want to know what happened to Diane. I know. um, After hearing the details about the trial, um, I I don't believe it was the Fongs, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, 
And so it makes me sad and really what makes me sad the most is that she had a one-year-old child and we couldn't find that much information about their, her child. And so that to me breaks my heart. I, I just hope, you know, we didn't, we, we covered this. We didn't want to exploit what happened to Diane in any way. We just wanted, you know, to bring it to attention and, and talk about it today. There's, like you said, it's crazy that we're seeing some of these things today um, that happened in 1954. So. And also just the treatment of, of women and girls, like, again, her being allowed to just go out into another person's home because, of course, they are married and have children, so it must be safe. And, you know, those ideas that are actually still around nowadays. I mean, it's not it's not unheard of that yeah. young girls are babysitting. So it's just safety, too. For sure. Yeah, I think those are kind of two really good thoughts to kind of sum up mm -hmm. why we kind of mm -hmm. picked this case. You know, just for, I mean, obviously we see today all the time still that women aren't safe mm -hmm. anywhere, yeah. unfortunately. And so even for people you think you know, you know, you might not be safe. And... For me, I think, so when I went into this case, you know, suggesting it to you guys, I actually, like, I had read just little blurbs about it, but I didn't get really in-depth into it, and so just kind of glancing at the information I had, it made it seem like the songs were guilty. Exactly. So looking into it more, I think this is a good case to highlight how the system can be unjust for people and how it can be used in the wrong way for, you know, people because this case should have, I mean, it should have never made it to a courtroom. Four times. Four you know? times. Crazy. Right. It just, the, the elements of murder are the elements of murder. You mm -hmm. have to prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, if you want to build your case entirely on circumstantial evidence, I guess that's fine. But in this case, it just is like something more. Right. Right. That says the Fongs murdered her. Right. Maybe they did. But based on the evidence that you have that you're presenting to me, if I'm a jury member, I just don't see mm -mm. it. No, not at all. Yeah, well, thank you so much, and I just wanted to say we're going to be up at the Crime Fest in October. Yes. <laughs> as well as you, we can't, and so maybe we can get together and, and have an IPA or something and do this in person, talk more about this Absolutely. in person. Yeah. I'm so excited to meet so many people that I've, like, had virtual I know. meetings with, but yeah. to actually, like, see people in person is going to be super exciting. For sure. So, listeners, that is the weekend of October 8th, 8th and 9th, 9th in Auburn, Washington. Yes. It's the True Crime Fest. We're going to be up there. Will Winston be there? Yeah. <laughs> we're debating whether we're bringing Winston. Um, we're for sure bringing some autographed photos. Oh, cute. Awesome. So, cute. But, um, and we will, of course, link the uh, ticket website in our show notes so that people can go there and get your tickets. They're actually pretty reasonably priced, I think. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. For, you know, a festival of this kind. 
and we would love to meet everyone, chit chat, true crime with people, and just. Yeah, I'm excited to meet you in person, like, you know, and just yes. meet Let's our podcast friends. More.